0: Do you ever find your taste in music changing a bit during the fall? As leaves drift onto the ground and reds and yellows highlight nature, I embrace the cozy atmosphere building around me and mellow out a little bit more. And my playlists definitely become a lot more laid back, trading in some of those brighter and more intense songs for softer, introspective, and definitely stripped-back songs, the time when I trade synths and electric guitars for soft piano and acoustic guitars, where the musicians I love unplug. Speaking of, how did MTV of all places become the default destination for acoustic concerts? The network that introduced decades of decadence and cheese became the setting for some of the most intimate musical moments. So let's look at that this week on The Tim Gavin Show, a holistic look at music and pop culture. Unplugged is one of MTV's two important contributions to music. The videos kickstarted a whole branch of pop culture that carries on one way or another into today, but Unplugged was the more artistic side of MTV, the side that got a lot of people who even hated the network and it's hated to tune in and see some of their favorite bands play. Unplugged was almost the antithesis of what it felt like MTV stood for. There was no excess, no dancing, just bands getting down to the bare basics of their music and sometimes reconstructing songs to show that they can be even better in a stripped-down setting sometimes. Pretty common to see bands and artists taking this approach to concerts today, but back then, it was a pretty radical idea. There are a few conflicting stories about who or what inspired the showrunners Jim Burns and Robert Small to create Unplugged for MTV. In an article for the Grammy Awards, uh, there's a claim that the series was started to promote an album called The Third Party, done by Jules Shear who hosted the first few episodes of Unplugged. According to the New York Times, Jules Shear got the idea from watching John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora play an acoustic set at the 1989 MTV VMAs. In a third version claims that Jim Burns and Robert Small got the idea from Bruce Springsteen playing an acoustic encore at the end of one of his concerts. And this idea took a lot of work just to get going around. HBO and PBS already turned down the series, and it took two tries to get MTV to say yes giving the green light for a 13-episode first season. And this first season was different from the Unplugged specials that you might be more familiar with, starting out as just half-hour mini-concerts and hosted by Jules Shear. The first episode had performances from Squeeze, Sid Straw, and Cars guitarist Elliot Easton, with later episodes featuring Aerosmith, Elton John, Shanae O'Connor, and Stevie Ray Vaughan, just to name a few. Videos of these early shows surface on YouTube once in a while, but the first season's featured artists didn't release those Unplugged specials, outside of those episodes. After those first 13 episodes, Unplugged did change its approach a little in 1991, stretching into hour-long episodes, and ditching the host. Guests that year included Sting, Elvis Costello, The Cure, R.E.M., and Paul McCartney, who was pretty excited to perform on Unplugged and strip back some of his songs. And unlike many artists who appeared that plugged their acoustic instruments into amplifiers, Paul McCartney went the extra mile and played Unplugged in the most literal sense possible. All instruments used were 100% unplugged, with microphones used in just the right spots to record. And he played a mix of uh, Beatles and some solo material, Along with a few covers, and Paul McCartney, always the musical pioneer, was the first artist to officially release an MTV Unplugged album, released in spring 1991 as Unplugged, the official bootleg. Initially as a limited edition, but reissued in the late 90s, and it eventually reached the top 10 in the UK, and became Paul McCartney's highest-peaking US album in many years at that point, even reaching number 14 on the Billboard 200. Branching out even more, MTV aired a rap Unplugged special with LL Cool J, De La Soul, and a tribe called Quest that year as well. And Unplugged kept bringing in the ratings and getting bigger and bigger as more artists appeared on the series. Eric Clapton was the next official Unplugged release, mostly playing the classic blues songs that inspired him, along with a couple of songs that he wrote, including a new version of Tears in Heaven, and a slower, shorter version of Layla. This album gave Eric Clapton some of the best reviews of his entire career, and introduced a new generation of fans to his music, boosting his already big popularity even higher. But Unplugged did do more than revitalize careers for older artists, though. It also sometimes cemented newer artists at the time in the spotlight. Mariah Carey was on a winning streak in the early 90s. Her first two albums sold massive numbers and gained her legions of fans, but some critics, they hadn't quite been won over yet. Because at the time, Mariah Carey really hadn't toured much, or made too many live appearances at all. But she sang on Unplugged to promote her second album, Emotions, and also to help shun these critics. The result was also a cover of Jackson 5's I'll Be There with Trey Lawrence from the episode as a single. But that single became so big, the rest of her Unplugged episode was released as an EP, which also became a bestseller. So already, just a couple of years into its formation, Unplugged established itself as a cultural force, but 1993 to 1995 is where Unplugged would really become iconic. Big performances include Stone Temple Pilots, where they debuted the song Big Empty, and that recording was never officially released, but bootleg albums of the Unplugged show do exist and will pop up once in a while. 10,000 Maniacs also performed their last televised concert with former singer Natalie Merchant and special guest David Byrne. The resulting live album spent 45 weeks on the charts thanks to their cover of Patti Smith's Because of the Night, which ended up becoming their biggest hit. Bob Dylan, Neil Young, and Tony Bennett also appeared and released live albums of their shows as well. And comedian Dennis Leary even got his own episode of Unplugged, and it was... interesting, if you enjoy that kind of comedy. There was even some big rock reunions that happened because of Unplugged. The Eagles took part in an MTV special called Hell Freezes Over, And even though it isn't an Unplugged album, it's still kind of associated with that because it was produced by the same crew that filmed the Unplugged episodes on TV. Robert Plant and Jimmy Page also recorded a live album of their MTV Unleaded project, doing acoustic versions of Led Zeppelin songs, and a reworking of others with a Middle Eastern and Moroccan influence. In 1995, Kiss reunited as their classic lineup of Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Peter Criss, and Ace Frehley for a few songs on an Unplugged album. And the popularity of that led to that original lineup touring together again for a few years. But of course, if we're going to talk Unplugged, we do have to talk that album. Recorded in New York City on November 1993, it was one of Nirvana's last shows, and recorded five months before Kurt Cobain passed. And Nirvana broke the rules a little bit on that concert. Most of the songs played were deeper cuts. I think the biggest hit at the time that they had that they performed on Unplugged was Come As You Are. Uh, They recorded six covers, three of which were Meat Puppet songs, which featured the Kirkwood brothers from the Meat Puppets as special guests on them, and a Lead Belly cover to end the album. This special was also recorded entirely in one take and Kurt Cobain even plugged into an amp for the show, going full electric when he covered David Bowie's The Man Who Sold the World. MTV Unplugged in New York was released almost a year after it was recorded, November 1st, 1994, just a few months after Kurt Cobain died, and it is considered one of the best live albums of all time. Unplugged kept going throughout the rest of the 90s. Argentina was well-represented with the series, with specials from Charlie Garcia, Luis Alberto Spinetta and Soda Stereo, and uh, Mexico's... Café Tacuba, Santa Sabina, and many other Mexican artists getting exposure to new audiences through Unplugged. Also, Shakira's first live album was an Unplugged performance released in 2000, which led her to become even more popular in North America, launching her career up here. Bjork also had a couple of concerts during the first run of Unplugged as well. But after Nirvana, there were only two more really legendary moments that would happen on Unplugged, at least as people know it, both in 1996. Alice and Chains gave their last performance with Lane Staley, who delivered a very strong performance despite clearly looking weekend due to his drug addictions. On a less depressing note, Oasis performed that year for an episode, but with a few changes. Lead singer Liam Gallagher pulled out at the last minute due to a sore throat, but that sore throat did not stop him at all from heckling the rest of the band from the rafters while they played with Noel handling the lead vocals. This performance was never released, but Liam Gallagher got his own unplugged moment, when he released an MTV Unplugged album that he recorded back in 2019. After the 90s, Unplugged had changed yet again, this time going from regular episodes to dedicated specials popping up on MTV Once in a Blue Moon. First revived as Unplugged 2.0. The first two artists on Unplugged 2.0 were Spanish singer Alejandro Sanz and Japanese singer Hikaru Utada, who became the youngest singer to be featured on the series so far but the first 2.0 special to really catch the attention of North American audiences was from Lauryn Hill, and fans of hers at the time were desperate for new material. At the time, she had disappeared from the public eye, escaping the pressures of fame, looking for spiritual guidance. I'm not gonna go into it, because it was pretty complicated. But, instead of playing stripped back versions of her old music, she just straight up changed her sound, abandoning hip hop, switching to folk and soul music, and playing all new material, and speaking of her experiences with fame and music in between interludes, which happened in between each song, along with a Bob Marley cover on that release as well. And eventually she released the album as Unplugged 2.0. It's the only official full album that we've gotten after the miseducation of Lauryn Hill, and it really wasn't what people were expecting. Not just with a change of sound, but all the songs were extremely long, like between five and nine minutes, and one of the interludes was about 12 minutes long. Unlike her solo debut album, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, this album was not quite as well received by a lot of people. Some critics loved it as an artistic statement, and in fact Adele, Sam Smith, and Solange Knowles have all named this album as one of their favorites. But a lot of people hated it too. But the fact that it's so dividing is what I think makes it so interesting. Make sure you give it a listen sometime. After that, there were fewer Unplugged specials in the years following, with uh, some featuring Dashboard Confessional, Nickelback, and Queens of the Stone Age. But Alicia Keys was the next high-profile special. It was recorded in 2005, and was the first Unplugged special to get televised in three years. And it also featured special guests Common, Damian Marley, Mose Def, and Adam Levine. In fact, that resulting live album was the best-selling Unplugged release since Nirvana's back in 1994. In 2006, both Ricky Martin and new metal band Korn released Unplugged albums, both pretty successful. But again, Unplugged laid pretty dormant until MTV revived it again with a six-episode season in 2009, with Adele, Silver Sun Pickups, All Time Low, Paramore, Vampire Weekend, and Katy Perry. These episodes were shown in full online with some single performances, Nvidia video rotation afterwards. All Time Low and Katy Perry released their performances both as an EP. And throughout the 2010s, MTV kept reviving the show. They showed specials from Adam Lambert, 30 Seconds to Mars, Miley Cyrus, Canadian rapper Chaos, and even the Scorpions filmed an unplugged episode, releasing a full live album back in 2013. But! The series has kept going into today, and it's even picked up a little bit more in recent years. Though not as iconic as it used to be, you will still see a new Unplugged episode and album once in a while. Two newer, high-profile ones being from Shawn Mendes, and another from AHA, with the Unplugged version of Take On Me becoming kind of a hit, and being featured in Deadpool 2. But now, I want to know what it was about the mid-90s that made Unplugged Peak back then, and not so much now. So, let's look back at what albums were really big at the time. Taking a look at the Billboard 200 this week in 1994 with my pal Scott Mitchell for still the number one. 1994! Holy crap! Like, it feels like half the good albums from the 90s came out this year.
1: And that was a thing. There was, um there wasn't a lot of like standout albums i would say um there were standout songs yes and there were a lot of one-hit wonders in the 90s but for full albums like there i, I would say that you're probably correct on
0: that uh because otherwise yeah there wasn't much yeah i don't know but still these these are like most of the big classics from here so we'll, we'll start up right at the top here eric clapton from the cradle and this is a point where eric clapton he is making he's made his comeback he has permanently cemented himself as successful over four different decades because of course he had success in the 60s and 70s maybe not so much in the 80s but yeah going into the 90s like he released his unplugged album and got a whole new wave of popularity there and now with from the cradle it's mostly blues standards Like, this is just Eric Clapton going full blues in the 90s, and it's great. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, fantastic album. It actually won
1: an award as well uh, and debuted at number one on the Billboard 200.
0: Yeah, which I don't care what decade you're from, debuting right at the top on the Billboard 200. That is amazing and seriously impressive and there were a lot of albums on the chart that had been number one for a while too, like going down to uh, number two, we got uh, boys to men. Uh, they had the number one spot last week. Now in number two and three weeks on the chart too. So already doing really good there. Absolutely. And this was like boys to men, like prime year for them
1: was 1994. So that makes total sense. Why it would be there. Uh, also in, uh, as we, usually do we'll run through the top 10 uh number 10 was Candlebox where they're with their self-titled debut album
0: pretty decent album I always kind of thought they were a little more on the underrated for 90s rock bands yeah
1: yeah but it's you don't really band. hear much from them
0: yeah but still you know solid band you're looking for like one of the less talked about 90s grunge bands give give Candlebox a listen you're gonna find some real gems in there same with Stone Temple Pilots purple
1: yeah, that was uh, also, uh, it peaked at number one. It was a former number one uh, in at number nine this past week. Yeah. Uh, number eight was Cheryl Crow's Tuesday Night Music Club. Yeah, and
0: I'll admit, I haven't really listened to a whole lot of uh, Sheryl Crow's music aside from the singles. But oh, those singles, they are brilliant.
1: Yes, absolutely. There's a reason why the, they were chart toppers, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, the Offspring was Smash in at seven. Yeah and this album I think it's very special for it to be as successful as it was like I think I think Smash was entirely independent like this wasn't a major label album which is huge to be making yes. it this far.
1: Correct. I think you're you're correct on that one. Uh but yeah and just awesome at the same time. Uh first of two soundtracks in the top 10 number 6 is the Forrest Gump soundtrack.
0: Yeah, a lot of people seem to be loving that one lately. Like I see I see a lot of nostalgia for it. I'll admit I haven't seen Forrest Gump yet, but I have seen the track listing for that soundtrack and yeah, you know, I can see why it would be super popular. You haven't seen Forrest Gump. Not yet. There is a lot of movies that I have not seen. I am working on remedying that as we go through these crazy times like like I said, 2020 is the year where everyone gets caught up on the stuff that they should be watching.
1: Yeah. Uh getting caught up on things from like twenty six years ago, apparently for Tim Gavin. <laughs> uh number
0: five was Green Day's Dookie album. Yeah, which is a lot of people will argue that this was their last great album too, but you know, those are the real like major punk rock gatekeepers. You know, well, a couple levels down from the ones that won't even consider Green Day Punk, but this is a really great (laughs) punk album. Uh, And the soundtrack to The Lion King in at number four. Yeah, and again, that was at number
1: one at one point as well. It was on the charts at this point for like 16 weeks already, So, and still holding on to the number four position. Still holds up today, too. Yes, totally. And Anita Baker's Rhythm of Love uh, also um, in here, debuting at number three, and that's basically where it stayed. Yeah, I mean,
0: good for her. I'll admit I have not heard this album yet, but, you know, it makes me want to check it out now. (laughs) Uh, Also, former number one in at number 11, Ace of Bass and The Sign, which is a great album. 43 weeks on the chart, too. And I feel like this is one of those 90s albums that everyone seems to have had at one point. Yeah, I think so. I think no matter
1: who you are, you had The Sign at one point or another
0: yeah and it's one of those albums that like you'll always find a copy at a thrift store too oh
1: 100 like uh, it's either somebody's uh just dropped it off and got rid of it after holding on to it for a couple of years after they got it from a thrift st- store
0: or something like that yeah you're gonna find it 100 percent. yeah but really you need to hold on to that album because it is a really really great pop album oh for sure Yeah, and you and you hear songs from it all the time, too. Yeah. Going down to number 14, the Rolling Stones, like they seem to at least have a a grasp on some sort of chart in the in each decade somehow, too.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, they're along the same lines as Clapton. I don't think you're going to find uh, a a decade at all without something from the stones on it.
0: Yeah. And And then uh, Biggie in at number 15 with Ready to Die yeah yeah great album too like that one this is just getting its first week on the charts and i think it's probably going to go up a little bit more too as you if you look back on the charts like it it still climbs up the charts a lot more totally and
1: uh yeah you like you said fantastic album as well
0: yeah it's kind of weird seeing like um tim mcgraw in his early years too like he looks so different here but with not a moment too soon another classic country album totally Totally. Uh, Also an award winner. Yeah. And going down a little bit further, 19. uh, Again, this was a number one album. 28 weeks on the chart at this point. Soundgarden with what a lot of people consider their magnum opus, Super Unknown. Great album, though. Right? It's, it is iconic for a reason. Uh, I think further down on the chart as well, you'll see the album that was like number two on the charts that same week that Soundgarden was at number one, Nine Inch Nails, The Downward Spiral. And there is actually a lot of Nine Inch Nails stuff on the charts here, like the Natural Born Killer soundtrack. Yep. Go down further, the Crow soundtrack, 1994, huge year for Trent Reznor.
1: Totally. And uh, that also goes to show how much movie soundtracks actually impacted the charts uh, especially in the 90s it was huge it was one of the biggest trends you saw where you would see soundtrack after soundtrack after soundtrack from movies and even to a lesser
0: extent tv shows too yeah absolutely in fact you know looking down even further number 41 we are seeing the lion king again with uh, a (laughs) sing-along i mean you got to do what you got to do right (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. But still, like, it, it it, still blows my mind how seeing, like, multiple releases can get different spots on the charts. It, too. And, like, oh. the Reality Bites soundtrack was
1: in at number 34 as well.
0: Yeah, great soundtrack, yep. too. Again, these keep popping up. Uh, Aerosmith uh, with Get a Grip, this is, again, another comeback for them. They had a lot of big hits on this And album. in the
1: former number one as well. It was on the charts for 74 weeks.
0: Yeah, and Ill Communication. This was another number one album at one point, The Beastie Boys. Uh, I know a lot of people, this is one of their favorite Beastie it's Boys It's a great albums. album. I mean, I'm not
1: gonna lie, it's fantastic. I mean-
0: like this is like, it's one of three Beastie Boys albums that I think that every music fan should listen to. Like it's this one, uh, Paul's Boutique and License to Ill. Yeah. Like those three, those are like the essentials for the Beastie Boys.
1: Absolutely. Couldn't agree more with that one. Uh, Coolio was on the charts as well with It Takes a Thief.
0: Yeah. I'll admit I've only ever heard Gangsta's Paradise, but after seeing like a few interviews with Julio, it does make me want to go back. It makes me want to check out what other great songs that he has because, you know, that's the thing about a lot of like the more one hit wonders or artists that only have like the one song in most mainstream consciousness is there is usually a whole treasure trove of really good stuff if you open up your mind a little bit just keep digging you'll find something else that you'll really like too yeah another great coolio song is fantastic voyage oh yeah that's another <laughs> really great one too. oh number 40 we got uh, other 90s darlings the, the smashing pumpkins with siamese dream i think this was still the point where billy corgan still had a full head of hair too <sighs>
1: what a weird thing to make a connection for tim (laughs) i know
0: i know i know but still like there's just like it feels like a different era for the smashing pumpkins too like once uh once he shaved his head and started like putting out like even like heavier and longer albums it just like it takes a bit of a different direction not saying it's bad not saying it's good it's just the way it is (laughs)
1: Fair. See uh, a lot more of the country albums making their way into the charts as well. Uh, John Michael Montgomery's kicking it up at 42. Reba McIntyre's Read My Mind was at 44. And Vince Gill's When Love Finds You was at 46 this week.
0: Yeah. And this is like kind of a point where you'll see a lot more country artists start to get on these charts a heck of a lot more than they used to. Yeah. And I think it was because of how Billboard Magazine or it was either Nielsen or Billboard, how they started, like, counting the sales numbers. And they changed some things and found that there are a whole bunch of country albums and a bunch of rock albums that and also, missed out on the charts. And also, like, when you
1: look at, you know, the, I guess from a nostalgia point of view, the 90s are to country what the 80s are to classic hits. Like, pretty that is much. the
0: pretty much the prime decade, right? Yeah, like, most cla- most country stations, like, they won't go too much further back than, like, 1990.
1: Yeah, exactly, and it's yeah. because 90s was that prime decade. Yeah, pretty much. A collective Soul was also on a
0: 43, with hints, allegations, and things left unsaid. Yeah, a lot of the big hits on that one, but I know m- when most people think of Collective Soul, they're one of those... Bands that I think most people just go for the greatest hits, but this album is a masterpiece.
1: I would agree. Uh, yeah. I, I I've heard the album time and time again. I mean, you kind of have to. Uh, it was fantastic. And uh, but yeah, you're totally right. Like when you think Collective Soul, it's your shines, your December's, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: Yeah. And oh, number forty nine, Pink Floyd with um, it was with one another, with their last album for quite a long time, The Division Bell. Yes. Hey Scott, so. With Pink Floyd, who do you like more, Roger Waters or David Gilmour?
1: Hmm, I'd have to go with Roger Waters,
0: I think. Really? I, 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 it makes sense. I, I personally am more of a David Gilmour fan. I mean, yeah, the, the Roger Waters-led Pink Floyd, is it's great, of course, brought us Dark Side of the Moon. It brought us The Wall. But... I do like more of the laid back soundscapes that David Gilmore brought on the Division Bell. And I kind of feel like this one is more underrated in Pink Floyd's discography. That's fair.
1: I'll give you that one. Uh, Seal was in at number 50 this week as well with his self titled
0: album. Yeah. And this was like right before he really got big. I think uh, the song Killer was a fairly decent single. Like, I it's one of my favorite Seal songs. Yeah. But it still be a little while longer. Before Seal would release his next album And that would like really like Bring him into the mainstream And cement his place as a musical great Another self-titled album at 52 Tony Braxton Another great singer Another one that I wish I would listen to more Because like whenever a Tony Braxton song Would come on in the background It's like oh hey this is really good Yeah A lot of her stuff though is like So
1: ballady i like that though i like a good ballad that's fair but at some point it kind of fades off into the distance like
0: elevator music kind of but hey there's nothing wrong with that either sometimes you just need something a little more laid back that's just, fair uh, just to help you just get rid of that tension that that's goes fair. on throughout fair. the day number 58 celine dion the color of my love Talk about laid back. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I feel like a lot of people forget about just how popular Celine Dion used to be. Like, obviously, she still sells at tours, but you don't really hear about her selling albums like she used to. No. But, like, everyone had this album, she too. She
1: had, like, what, was it a year ago where she released uh, a few singles right at
0: once? Like, I think it was three in a day. Yeah, the last... The last one I remember is the song she did for the Deadpool 2 soundtrack. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there was like three more after that. Yeah. Uh
1: Mariah Carey's Music Box is in at 60. That's also a former number 1.
0: Yeah, and 1994, another pretty prime year for Mariah Carey, like she was like she had her unplugged performance a few years ago that really kind of cemented her spot, but now the hits just keep coming with her. Totally. Yeah. Hundred uh, percent. and Salt and Peppa with very necessary at sixty two. Also a very necessary listen. I mean, how could you can't go wrong with Salt and Peppa either. That's they just true. keep making just banger after banger. And I I know the one thing that I have observed with hip hop is that it, it's forward thinking to the point where you don't really hear too many rappers like acknowledge the classics, but Salt and Peppa they seem to like kind of buck that trend a little bit still have people just re- keep uh keep getting inspired by their stuff and keep getting lots of love and appreciation even now and in- into today
1: absolutely couldn't agree more weezer 69 with weezer nice again really tim again <laughs> yeah.
0: but i should be, be more surprised. Specific, to be more specific it is the blue album because they have a lot of self-titled albums but with Weezer the blue album it is one of the two all-time classics in their back catalog a lot of their most popular songs on here and a little while later they'd release Pinkerton not really too well received at the time that it came out but it would kind of grow to become as iconic as the blue album too absolutely yeah I see we got a tribute album on here too. Uh, if I were a Carpenter, oh yes, yeah, and no, I never really dived too much into the Carpenters, but you know, I looked into the track listing for this kind of a kind of an indie rock kind of spin on it too. Okay, I think, I think that'd be kind of cool. Yeah, I think so. That would uh, be a different look at the Carpenters for sure. Yeah, and. Coming in at 75, the 69 boys, 1990 quad. Now, I just want to know, did they ever get to 69 on the charts or did it just go straight up to 63? I I don't know if I'll ever figure that out. Uh,
1: I mean, you might have to spend weeks looking at the charts. And by weeks, I mean weeks. Yeah. We are. (laughs) Here's Tim
0: questioning things again. Yeah. Another two classics 77 and 78 but classics for entirely different reasons we got jeff foxworthy you might be a redneck if i know this is like one of those comedy albums that everyone had Uh, i know and it's like
1: it's so cheesy but that was jeff foxworthy for you
0: it was and i'll admit i have a copy i listened to it a few weeks ago it it hasn't aged well but that kind of happens with comedy too it's It's one of those things where it's very much a snapshot of the times. For
1: sure. And then you said uh, also at 78 was Nirvana and In Utero.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, arguably, I think In Utero was a little bit better than Nevermind, but I think that's just because it wasn't quite as popular. It's the one that you have to really discover on your own time and really get appreciation for it that way.
1: The gym blossoms were in at number eighty one as well with New Miserable
0: Experience. And I I don't mind me some gym blossoms. Oh yeah. Can't go wrong with them. And we got uh ooh, Sarah McLaughlin fumbling towards ecstasy. And
1: this was like not a huge album in terms of singles for Sarah McLaughlin. Like this one only really had possession and ice cream on it. Yeah. And
0: you know, she's known for being more laid back, but I think this was like when she was like at her I want to say like least laid back that's fair
1: yeah she was a little bit more um i don't want to say vengeful but <laughs> she maybe this was her like taylor swift alanis
0: morissette era yeah i think i think that was kind of the case too oh number 84 another album that it feels like everyone had at one point who did yeah. the blowfish cracked rear view yeah totally Every, yeah everyone's had that one yeah A Greatest Hits
1: album from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers was at 89. Wow. Oh, look at that cover art, too. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Uh, And Metallica in at number 94. Yeah, with the Black album. Definitely an iconic album. And, in my opinion, the last great Metallica album. (laughs) That's fair. There's a
1: lot of people who... Would probably argue that with you and a lot of people who would agree with you on that one.
0: I fall into the agree. Oh, yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of people that are going to disagree with me. A lot of people who love Load and Reload. I think they're okay, but, you know, they're they're no Injustice for All. They're no Black Album. They're no Master of Puppets. True that. Uh, And then Snoop
1: Doggy Dog with Doggy Style at 97
0: Still holds up. Still a great album. You still hear uh, stuff from that album all the time, and you can't help but jam. Yeah, exactly. And number 98, Pearl Jam with 10. and Never quite made that number one spot, but still solidified itself as one of the all-time great albums. And was, albums of and all was
1: time. on this chart for 144 weeks at this point.
0: Well, yeah, because it's just yeah, that good. Like,
1: that is... Yeah.
0: Uh, nearing three years (laughs) yeah and coming in number 101 and this album it's also been on the charts forever at this point never mind Nirvana yeah Yeah, also almost three years yeah in fact you start to see like a lot of like some of the classic grunge albums still kind of hang out in here with Alice in Chains Jar of Flies Uh, I think one of the greatest selling EPs of all time still to this day
1: yeah, and like like you said, you got the Verses album from Pearl Jam in here, still kicking around. Um, you have what else? Uh, I just well, right, the Spin Doctors turn it upside down was on at uh, number one twenty four. Yeah, yeah, Outcast still kicking in there, one twenty six. That's and that's the thing. Like on the Billboard two hundred as soon as you get into the area from number 100 to number 200 you're either going to see song or albums that were on the charts for like very minimal weeks or albums that have been on the
0: charts for three four years yeah actually i wonder i wonder if we go farther down enough i want to see if we can find dark side of the moon on here too <laughs>
1: <laughs> Garth Brooks, "No Fences," was on for 211 weeks at this point, and was at number 136. Yeah.
0: Oh, we got Jimi Hendrix on here too with uh, a Woodstock live album. Really? Yeah. Ooh, Phantom of the Opera soundtrack, number 151. Okay. Yeah, I see that. That was yeah. on for 239 weeks. Yeah. Ooh, another another cancon ha- highlight right here. Brian Adams. So far, <laughs> so good. Uh,
1: you also had uh, the best of Van Morrison in at 162 for 227 weeks.
0: Yeah. By the way, have you heard about what Van Morrison's been up to these days? No. Do I want to? I'm not sure you do, but he's, he became that guy and is like against the lockdown and he wrote some protest songs against them. Okay. Yeah. They are not great. I wouldn't expect them to be. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, the Unplugged album from Eric Clapton still on here at
0: 176. We also got one from Tony Bennett at 161. That's a name I haven't heard in forever. Right? Well, I mean, he's he's still putting out albums. He yeah. put out the one with Lady Gaga. You remember that? Yeah, it was still like, what, five years ago? Yeah. Seems and... like forever still it really does. Oh, we got uh, Shade with Love Deluxe. Another one of those like perfect like just I'd say it's a it's a good rainy day album, True. you know? Yeah. Like you, you know what I'm going with, right? And then right on right below that Sir Mix-a-Lot with Chief Boot, Naka. Yeah. Sir Mix-a-Lot's another another great rapper that you really have to like I don't know. Do a deep dive into into his back catalog. You're gonna find some jams there.
1: The mask soundtrack at 185. Please tell me you've at least seen the mask.
0: Oh I have it on Blu-ray.
1: Okay, well
0: It's one of I
1: I have the comics too. Okay, so you have redeemed yourself a little bit.
0: Yeah. Seriously, like Have I not seen I I have seen The Mask. The Mask is, like, one of my all-time favorite comic books. Well, okay,
1: I was just asking because you've never seen Forrest Gump.
0: Well, okay, fair enough.
1: (laughs) Uh, And then Usher, Usher in
0: 193. Yeah, I I kind of forgot that he had music in the 90s.
1: Everybody does.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like, I... I remember hearing that, like, really early on in his career, like, he was supposed to be, like, uh, a big child star, kind of similar to Justin Bieber. Yeah. But then his voice changed, and then he had to uh, try—they had to start all over again. Yeah, and you're starting from scratch when that happens, that's for sure. Yeah. Number 194, uh, the Meat Puppets with Too High to Die. They had— been you know kind of popular in the underground rock scene but because of their appearance on Nirvana's MTV Unplugged uh, I think that really helped with their popularity got people listening to their music too uh 196 was Brooks and Dunn with Brand New Man another all-time classic in 90s country
1: yeah and then Adam Sandler with uh, his comedy album they're all gonna laugh at you 197 yeah
0: yeah I I actually like this one like the there it's again, hasn't aged too well, but there are a couple bits on that album that I think really has its moments. And true, I, I kind of wish that there would be more comedy albums like this, like not necessarily live on stage, but, you know, I, I haven't heard anyone else since Adam Sandler do like comedy sketches on CD. And I wish that would happen a little more often. Uh, and then
1: uh, rounding out the bottom was a re-entry at number 200, uh, Colin Ray's Extremes album.
0: Yeah, another another pretty decent, pretty decent album from Colin Ray. Yep, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So looking at this album, going all the way back up to the top. Yes. Eric Clapton from The Cradle. Do you think it's still the number one? Um, I don't know. See, I'm. I'm
1: torn on this one. like it's a great album, but I don't know if it's still the number one.
0: I, I I'm actually like, right there with you, just because like, you know it's it's not the best '90s clap now. I'm like it's great, mm-hmm. but it's no unplugged or anything like that. Exactly. But the thing is, every other album that I would think deserves the number one spot has already been, if not the number one already, at least in the top five. I agreed, hundred percent. Yeah, like even my favorite album. The downward spiral that is on this chart. Um, I Looking back, I think just having it at the number two spot, that was just like right where it needed to be because of just how experimental it is and how different it is compared to everything else. But I don't know. It's it's hard picking an album that deserved that number one spot. I think maybe, maybe Smash by The Offspring, but even then that is a little more niche at the time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I, yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, there's opportunities for a lot of albums to have great songs on them. Uh, so it's hard to
0: pick just one. Yeah, but I don't. Know, I think like maybe one album that deserves that spot a little bit more than Eric Clapton would probably have to be Biggie ready to die i think that would definitely deserve the number one spot and i think it would eventually get up there anyways yeah
1: yeah but as a first week debut having from the cradle in at number one instead of uh biggies ready to die at number 15 which also debuted in the same week seems a little bit uh weird
0: it does so what do you think still the number one no nah The Unplugged concept has evolved a lot from its not-so-humble beginnings as a staple of MTV at its peak, into a great artistic exercise for artists new and old, and for any style of music. Now, Nirvana's Unplugged is a must, but you're gonna find something that you love in every single Unplugged album, and here's a few of my favorites. One official MTV Unplugged album that I listen to the most is the Coors 1999 Unplugged album. While their music is a lot more acoustic than most artists who record there, the Cores managed to strip back their music even more and reconstruct other songs into a completely unique experience from the studio. All the big hits are there on this release, including songs that would appear on their next album in blue, along with two traditional Irish instrumentals, and covers of Jimi Hendrix, Phil Lynott from Thin Lizzy, and R.E.M. While researching this episode, I listened to Jay-Z's unplugged album featuring The Roots as his backing band. Hearing his songs and verses in an acoustic setting is a really great experience, and one that really makes me appreciate his early material even more. And even if you don't normally listen to hip-hop, I think this is a must-listen, and could change your mind about it. The Arkells released a brand new acoustic album back in August, and it is another quarantine album made with each member recording their parts, all edited together. Not really a live album, but when you listen to it, it does sound like they're all in one room. I'd even go so far as saying that it is one of the coziest albums of 2020. And this year was supposed to be a busy one for hardcore punk band Code Orange, releasing their critically acclaimed fourth album Underneath on March 13th, just as the COVID-19 pandemic had really taken hold of the world. But they're still keeping busy this year by doing livestream concerts, and by recording a live album Under the Skin, a radical departure from the industrial-tinged punk rock sound they've established. Instead going for a haunting acoustic set, sticking to their own songs in a dark Unplugged sound, with one cover of Alice in Chains' Down in a Hole, which is currently their most streamed song online. I hope you've enjoyed this look at the history of Unplugged. Subscribe to The Tim Gavin Show wherever you listen to podcasts, and make sure that you rate and review me on iTunes if possible. And don't forget to like The Tim Gavin Show on Facebook, Links to social media, along with show notes, along with all my sources, and more music credits and further listening, all in the description. Additional production on Still the Number One by Scott Mitchell, I'm Tim Gavin, talk to you next time.